Recognizing birds as an essential skill for a birder, and as the author of the American Birding Association's Field Guide to the Birds of Minnesota, I'm supposed to be an actual authority on bird identification. But important as recognizing birds is, it's never been my primary interest. When I was a teacher, recognizing my students was essential too, but hardly the point. On the first day of school, I'd bring my Olympus camera loaded with a new roll of film and take a picture of each child. That was back in the days when one-hour film development was a new thing. I'd get the film developed after school and take the pictures home to construct an identification guide for each class. In the same way that I needed to learn a whole new batch of birds when Russ and I went to Arizona, I needed to know each student's range to put them in the correct guide. The field guide to Mrs. Erickson's sixth grade science class had an entirely different set of students than the field guide to Mrs. Erickson's seventh grade math class. In the classroom, the official range map, my seating chart, was very helpful, but in the same way that individual birds can sometimes be found out of range, occasionally a couple of kids would swap seats to try to throw me off. I couldn't focus on a lot of elements of overall plumage. Whatever a child was wearing in that first photo was bound to be entirely different the very next day. Through the first week, I'd add helpful field marks, especially vocalizations and behavior, to cement my memory of each child. But as with bird identification guides, my field guides to my students quickly became extraneous as we fell into a new year of math or science or reading or music. At this point, the birds I find in Duluth are usually ones I recognize as easily as I recognized my students a few weeks after school started each year. But now and then, even today, I need to focus on identification, cracking out field guides, and even more specialized resources. The hummingbird coming to my feeder right now is a case in point. It's important to know for sure who this one is because the likelihood of survival as November proceeds is much more probable if this is a rufous hummingbird than if it's any other species. Why? Rufous hummingbirds breed the farthest distance from the equator of any hummingbirds. In spring, the main population migrates north along the Pacific Slope. They breed in the Pacific Northwest and Alaska and work their way south along the Rocky Mountains before they get to the American Southwest and their wintering grounds in southwestern Mexico. Outlier rufous hummingbirds sometimes appear in the eastern states, especially during fall and winter. Most avian outliers end up dying without passing on their genes, but individual rufous hummingbirds wintering in the United States are increasing in number, meaning these outliers are indeed passing on their genes to new generations. Normal rufous hummingbirds may be at a disadvantage as extreme hot temperatures grow ever more common and as tropical deforestation damages their winter habitat, which may be why the outliers are suddenly getting an evolutionary advantage. 
It's fairly intuitive that hummingbirds wintering in the southeastern states could survive their mild winters, but we're also seeing individual rufous hummingbirds surviving entire winters in Ohio and Pennsylvania, even with sub-zero temperatures. Knowing for certain that my bird is a rufous hummingbird is important for understanding more about how the species is changing its migratory route and its wintering range. Tomorrow, I'll explain how we've confirmed that this bird is an adult female rufous rather than an almost identical species that would not be as hardy. I'm Laura Erickson, speaking for the birds.